Hi, this is Elizabeth Bailey, and you're listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. In the first verse of this passage, it kind of gives the heads up of what's going on. Look with me at verse one. This is what God's word says. It's a letter to this exiled people. It says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders and exiles, to the priests, to the prophets, to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And so he sets up this letter that in the 500s BC, most of Israel is now living in Babylon. And Babylon is a solid 700 miles from Jerusalem. See, God had made a covenant with these people, the Jewish people, that they would live in Israel, but they would have to live by faith. They would have to live according to God's laws and have to live by faith. And Israel throughout their history largely didn't live by faith. They often worshipped other gods or didn't follow the law or didn't follow it. And so in 587 BC, God came true on his promised curse. That he let the Babylonians, who they've been warring with, go ahead and take Israel over. Jerusalem fell. The gates were burned. Horrible war struck and Israel lost. And God allowed this to happen and the Babylonians were cunning they took all those elders, all the what we call elites, cultural elites, government elites, all these people of high standing, and they took them captive to Babylon and left all the working class and the poor to keep working all the farms and all the fields to bring taxes to the empire. They hoped to influence those cultural elites, you can read it in the book of Daniel, to come to their ways, to become Babylonian in their custom and culture, and they left the others to continue to work and to receive taxes to fund the ever-expanding Babylonian empire. And God writes a letter through Jeremiah to them. And Jeremiah wasn't one of the people taken. We call him a prophet, and he's in the Bible now, but Jeremiah, he's in Jerusalem. He's this forgotten guy that's being used by God to tell God's people that God hasn't forgotten you. So he writes a letter. And this is what God says through him. Verse four, it hits really into the heart of why are they in exile? It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exile whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. See all those prophets and diviners, they said, don't listen to. They were saying, oh, this is a terrible misfortune. Oh, this is a terrible thing. Surely God will bring us back quick. Surely this is a big mistake. And God is being clear. It's me that sent you into exile. It's God who did it. God is the author and the authority in our story. And he's telling the Israelites, I have sent you into exile. I've not forgotten you. Instead, I have instructions for you. I have a way that you should live. Don't listen to all these people who are trying to just do a posi vibes only thing. Oh, we'll be back in a week. God is good. No, no. God has judged us. And we're going to be here more than a minute. And so God has instructions because he's not going to waste their exile. He's not going to waste their suffering, just like he doesn't want to waste ours. When you feel like this life, you're like, Lord, why doesn't he just come back? Things can't get any worse. God is telling us, I don't want to waste a single tear in your life. 
I don't want to waste any suffering in all the journey between you walking with Jesus and you going home to be with Jesus or him coming back. God wants to use it with purpose and God is downloading that purpose to these people, but it's the same for us because we too are exiles. We don't belong to this world. We don't belong to, to these things, but rather we belong to a king who's coming or that we're going home. So look with us. These are God's instructions to live a full life in exile. Look at verses five and six. It's peculiar advice. He says, go ahead and build houses and live in them. Plant some gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and have daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Our instinct when things are going wrong is just to hang on. Just grip the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. Maybe grip the wheel and just hang on when things get bad. And if you were taken captive 700 miles away from your home from people who just destroyed your land, you would probably want to just hang on too. We're not having kids. Are you kidding me? No, we're not building houses. We're just going to try to make it through this mess until the end. And God is saying the opposite. He is saying, go ahead and live your life to the full. You must keep living. When life gets hard, just shutting down isn't the answer. Hiding away as a Christian and hiding away from our culture isn't the answer. As tempting as it sounds, God is telling us that we are to live a full life because it's an echo of the creation mandate. It's what it means to be a human. In Genesis 1 and 2, he looked at Adam and Eve, the first humans, and he says, you need to work and keep, name them animals, multiply and increase. And the echo is clear to the Jewish people here. He's saying, you must keep living. I know you're not at home but I want you to act like you are because you have me and I'm the big point in your life. The point was never the promised land. It was the promise to God. And you might be a prodigal nation right now, but you coming home, just not today. So he says, make this place your home, settle in. You know how long it takes to build a house? A long time. You know, buy land in another country, it takes some time to get materials, to have jobs, to plant gardens. And we don't have to buy homes and plant gardens, though you might want to. Planting a garden is very therapeutic. It's great. I'm a big fan of gardening. Um, but he's saying you need to settle in. Settle in, church. Put down those roots. Stop complaining. Stop looking for quick fixes. Stop searching around on Instagram and make this home now. Live fully. And I love the relational component. You don't have to get married, but if you want to get married, go ahead and get married. But what it's saying is you need to go out there and get your heart broken risk in your relationships, healthily risk, but live for me in all you do. It's not just build houses, it's build friendships, build into people. And here's why, because God has a wild promise for them that extends to us. Verse seven is a wild, deep promise of God. That if you want to experience the fullness of God, you got to bank your life on verse seven. Look with me. 
It says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The wild promise is that as you seek your enemies, your captors' welfare, you will actually find your welfare. And when God says welfare, the word he's using there is actually shalom in Hebrew. The Jews reading this would be like, whoa, God's presence is for me, not them. Shalom is translated peace often, but what it means is the fullness of God's presence in your life, that his purpose and power and presence would be with you. It doesn't mean the absence of work. We think peace, we think vacation. That's not what it means. We think peace means no one's fighting. That's not what it means. It means wherever you are, God is there and he's more than enough for you. And he says, if you seek their shalom, these evil, terrible captors who've taken everything from you and are trying to convert you to their culture, if you seek their welfare, their peace, their good is another translation. That's why we say seek the good of Birmingham. If you seek their good, you're going to find your good. If you seek their well-being and then apparently even pray for them, you know what? That probably sounded like nails on a chalkboard to these people. I'm going to pray for my enemies. Do you know in the Old Testament, we're never told to pray for our enemies? That's not until Jesus in Matthew 5.44, when Jesus just casually says, hey, but I say love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The radical teaching of Jesus just pops right up in the exile here. Actually, I want you to seek their good these evil people, evil to you at least. I want you to pray for them. See, God, when he tells us to seek their good, it means we seek God's shalom in another person's life. It has two pieces. One, we do it with our words. We must speak the word of God to others, the gospel of God to others, to speak to their truest need. Whether they're Babylonians or Birminghamians, everybody needs Jesus, including us. Everybody needs more of the gospel. So if we're going to seek someone's good, we must speak to their highest good at their deepest need, which is a spiritual need, that they need Jesus. And then the second part, we must seek their good indeed. Our deeds will speak louder than our words often, but we must still use our words that we are for the good of Birmingham, the peace of Birmingham, the welfare of Birmingham. And that looks like a lifestyle of service, of kindness, of gentleness, of respect, of pursuing justice, of all the fruits of the Spirit coming out in our life. It's an entire lifestyle, not a good deed once or a serve day once. It is your entire life is about the welfare and peace of other people. And God's promise is that you'll find more peace, that you'll find more God on his mission, that there's more God out there for you on God's mission, which is a radical thought that as I actually pursue their good, I get good. This text explicitly tells them to pray for their enemies. So when we are pursuing the shalom, God's presence, is when people act like God's people in word and deed. We pray for what we're doing, and then we go ahead and fulfill that prayer. And when we do that in word and deed, what can we absolutely be sure is going on? That God's at work in you. 
when you seek the peace of others, he says, I'm going to show up with more peace in your life. I'm going to show up with more good of who I am in your life. God's plan, his mission is that his people in all places would seek the good of their city as an exile and then fulfill that prayer that they're praying. Don't let people assume you're a good person and that's why you're a great neighbor because they will. You're like, I am killing it on my block. I make cookies. My apartment building loves me. And they will assume, well, she's just a really good person. Or they might assume, man, that guy is really emotionally well-adjusted. I bet he has really thought and been to counseling. That's what they'll think. Don't let people assume you're just well-educated or have good parents or down to earth or of this political persuasion or that political persuasion. People will interpret you in a thousand ways and it won't be Jesus. Your good deeds will get washed away with another neighbor they don't have to worry about unless you explicitly tell them, I'm a great neighbor and I'm seeking your good because God loves me. And the big secret is this, that God loves you too. And it don't have to be a secret. It's okay to be happily unashamed for the gospel. Say, yeah, I I love you and want to do good things for you because I love Jesus. He loves me and he loves you too. That might be super offensive, but my experience is usually it's not. Usually people go, oh, okay. They might think you're weird, but at least you're clear. At least it's not like, well, maybe they're going to run for political office one day. Maybe she's just really into yoga. That's why she's so peaceful. Maybe they eat organic. You know, people will interpret you a billion ways, and it's saying, hey, don't conform to culture. You're already a part of it in some ways. But man, in your word and deed, be clear that you're seeking their good because God has already been good to you. And as you seek others' good, God's going to show up as good in your life. It's a promise worth keeping because God's going to keep his side. And we can keep ours by pursuing the good of Birmingham or wherever the Lord puts us. So here's the key for those captive, for them, for the captives that day and for us. God is telling them, if you just try to do self-preservation, you will miss my mission. If you just try to do me and chill, it's not going to work. Self-preservation takes absolutely no faith. It's just living a worldly life, keeping yourself number one. And God is telling us, if we seek their welfare, their good, their shalom, we're going to find more of God's shalom in our life. Conversely, if we skip the mission of God and choose self-preservation, we're going to miss God, or at least some of them. There's more out there for you, but it's going to take risk-taking. Risk-taking, probably not in danger, but at least willing to be embarrassed willing to introduce yourself and have someone be rude to you, willing to absolutely take steps of faith that might not feel like gigantic leaps, but rather small faithfulness in the workplace to the coworker who's always rude, but you're not going to give up today. As long as life is basically about you, you can rightly assume you're missing out with God. We can't follow Jesus and just do what we want with a Jesus cherry on top. We must follow the instructions that God has laid for us. And you might hear this in a sermon like this and be like, all right, it's time. I better go start that nonprofit. It's time. 
file the 501c3. Here we go, baby. We're going to do this. We got a great idea. We're going to raise some money. We're going to make a difference in however we think that is. And I'm just telling you, don't get so excited and miss verses five and six. The ordinary advice of God was, hey, go ahead and build that house, build that garden, get married, build up your relationships, do not decrease. Now, you don't have to do those exact things here, but you do have to say God has a very ordinary way he wants you to live out your faith. Your rootedness is access into people's lives. We live in an instant microwave society that wants now, now, now. And if it's not quick, it must be wrong. If it's not fast, it must be wrong. Everything must happen now. In God's plan, he's about to tell them, you got 70 years in exile coming. Not 70 weeks, not 70 months, but 70 years. And sometimes we get frustrated. Why don't my neighbors, why don't my coworkers care about this gospel or care about me? And man, we're trying to microwave them. It's been seven weeks, guys, or seven months. And a lot of important relationships take years to form. Your opportunity and prayers might need to be years in the making, not weeks. And you might ask, man, where's this tension with church planting and missions? I thought I was supposed to go, Matthew 28, go plant churches, go to missions. And there's a tension there. The tension's right here. I moved here to plant Citizens Church with about 10 other adults. We did that uh, two years ago. So what's the difference? Do we go or do we stay? And God's kind of funny like this. God throughout the Bible seems to be rooting the rootless and uprooting the rooted. You look at Abraham's story, he was thoroughly rooted and yet was called on to Israel. The Israelites were thoroughly rooted in Israel and they got yanked out to Babylon. And then you see the sojourner, the stranger, the wanderer throughout the Bible, rootless, tends to get rooted in a new family all the time. So I don't know what God's story he's telling through you, but I do know my story. I do know part of my story was being in Louisville at Sojourn and loving my life and going as deep as I could rooting for six years until I absolutely knew God was unrooting me and my family to come plant this church here. And a huge vision of it would speak to my larger story, that I am a deeply rootless person lived in 12 houses in six states throughout my life. I never lived anywhere more than five years until that sojourn six year. And part of the vision of citizens is like, Justin, will you root your life deep down into the ground and through that, let others root their life too? To have a hundred year vision for a church, that their churches would start thriving and outlasting the trees around here. They're beautiful, but it's humbling to think they were around before and after the crash of all the, almost all the churches in the immediate area. We want to outlive the, the trees and our health and our vibrancy. And so the call for citizens is to plant your life. It doesn't mean you have to stick around for 100 years. I don't think we'll make it. But I do think you'll make quite an impact if you invest your time well wherever you are for as long as you're there. God is saying self-preservation is not following me. There is a level of sacrifice and risk-taking to every season of life, whether it's a week or 70 years. And you will find God's peace and shalom in that. 
It's never been more culturally popular to unroot, to wander, to go, whether for Jesus or for hipness. But guess what? For Gen Z and millennials, which I'm a, a call me the elder millennial, I'm like the first one in and now the last at the party of millennials. We're the most, un, most anxious and unhappy people in the history of America by a wide margin. And I have to think parts of our unrootedness really speak to it because we all want great experiences, but the greatest experiences usually comes from depth of relationship, not just cool new experiences. Everybody wants a deep, meaningful life. And so the question is, what sort of person are you the sort of person to root down and be deeply known? Because if you are not deeply known, you cannot be deeply loved. It's impossible. If you are not deeply known, you cannot be deeply loved. And if you are not deeply loved, you don't have a chance to deeply love others. To deeply love others is to seek that real good, not a good deed, but a lifestyle where you're about their life. For you cannot give what you do not have. You ever meet someone that quickly says, I love Jesus and tells you all about it, but the more you get to know him, there's a sense, there's a lack of soulfulness that perhaps they're not experiencing the deep love of Jesus and his church and being known. And then over time, you see it's a lot out here, but not a lot in here. We want to be a people of depth that there's a lot in here. A people of soulful living, fully known, fully loved. And from that place, make quite a difference in our world. I want citizens to seek Birmingham's good in a generation of loneliness, of isolation, of deep divisions. What could be better for Birmingham than a rooted, beautifully diverse, relationally deep church that belongs to Jesus? I truly can't think of anything better. I can't. But that's the opportunity we have. But it will take us seeking other people's good and trusting God to meet us there and to take us deeper. And here's why this text applies so clearly to us. When you believed upon Christ, you started in exile from this world. The world is not truly your home anymore. What we do here and now, we do as exiles. That's our position to this world. But we're also on an exodus to heaven. God wants to use our exile just like he used Israel's exile to bring us both to himself and witness to everyone around us. We are leaving the slavery of sin for a far better country, both here and in heaven. And as exiles and on an exodus where Jesus is leading us towards himself, God's plan is this, that the promise of our good found in seeking other people's good will be slow, but it will be sure. And this next passage is often misused, but it makes all the sense of the world to us if you see that you're in exile. Verse 10 says this, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. For you know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. 
declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations and from all places where I have driven you, all nations, and declares the Lord. And I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. See, God gives a prophecy here that he's going to bring them back in 70 years. But this is what we call a triple fulfillment. I know, we're getting in right here. The triple fulfillment. He comes true. 70 years from now, all the people who hear this letter, they're dead. But their children, almost all dead, their children and children's children are going to be brought back by God's miraculous outstretched arm. You can read it in Ezra and Nehemiah. But this is also fulfilled again. This closeness with God that he's talking about will be fulfilled 600 years later in the coming of Jesus and the falling of the Holy Spirit, that you can seek him, find him, and have an intimate relationship with God. But then this text isn't quite fulfilled there either, because he's talking all nations called back to the presence of God. It's been 2,600 years, and it might be 2,600 more till the Lord returns But one day, this plans God has for us, the ultimate good he has for us, is that all of us and all tribes and all tongues and all nations will see the king of glory eye to eye, bow down and worship him. That is the final fulfillment that's coming in this passage. And we see that the way to live faithfully today, if we're exiles on this journey of fulfillment going home to Jesus, it means that we can take the promise of seeking Birmingham's good now and follow Jesus on mission for more of our good with God as well. I don't want to miss out on what God has for me because I chose self-preservation. I want to risk over and over for the good of my neighbor. I want to go help cut that tree. I want to help people with their car. I want to be an incredible neighbor. And I think you do too. Whether it's in the big ministries or the small ones, day by day of building houses and getting married. But if we rush it, church, we'll ruin it. See, I've gotten into horticulture or gardening. That was a little illusion earlier. Uh, I love to garden. I enjoy caring for plants and learning about them. My favorite summer treat to do with my family is to take them to like a blueberry farm and you can just pick blueberries and it's, it's kind of cheap. They're starting to rip us off, but you know, it's okay. It's an experience. Um, my kids are ripping them off. They're just straight to their mouth, paying for nothing. Got to tip them at the end. But here's the thing about blueberry bushes, because we've planted some own at our house. So I get to watch them grow and from a seed to being plantable in the ground takes a year. It has to be in a little bucket first. It won't really survive in the wild easily. And it only gets about yay high, maybe eight inches in a year. And after you plant in the ground, that's year one. And what gardeners say or farmers would say is then the plant sleeps. It spends an entire year barely growing. At the end of a year, it's only about 12 inches high. And you might get a grand total of four blueberries off it and a couple more leaves. But after a year of sleeping comes a year of creeping. And the creeping, you actually doesn't grow, but maybe six more inches. It looks like the scraggly bush, but the roots actually go further and further down and get stronger and stronger and stronger. So after three years, you have about 18 inches of plant and about 12 blueberries. Anyone would look at that plant and say, you failed. That's a blueberry bush, and we're not making pie with 12 blueberries. But you would miss, it has to sleep and then creep and then it leaps. 
that all the energy, all the things it's been storing in his roots will explode out of the ground in year four and become the blueberry bush it was mentor, meant to. And you'll get 10x blueberries. In year five, you'll probably get a pound of blueberries. If you're patient for a decade, you might pull 10 pounds off it every summer for as long as you're going to live. But it was a failure in year zero, one, two, three, right? Church, you're more complicated than a blueberry bush. Most of us are like, Jesus, why haven't you changed? Why aren't all my sins away and my life fixed? Well, God might not fix your life. And those sins might be more of a struggle that he wants to get all the way up in your story and your idols and change everything about you through this one sin becomes an access to all of your heart. I see it all the time here at Citizens, and, and I, I just want to encourage you the patience and slowness. If it was 70 years for them to get out of Babylon and 600 years till Jesus came, and it's been 2,600 years and counting before that final fulfillment to give yourself some grace and time, church, doesn't mean be lazy, but trust that God's at work even if you don't see him. Here at Citizens, you're more complicated than a blueberry bush, and we're all a bunch of blueberry bushes together, so together we're much more complicated than many blueberry bushes. And I, uh, often, I don't even see the big growth in folks until about a year mark at Citizens. About a year after membership that people start, about 12 months after that point, usually people start to take off in growth. And it looks like the gospel being taught in community groups and discipleship and Sunday starts to disarm you. You start to not have your guard up so much. And then suddenly your relationships convince you that the community is actually safe. You can't grow if you don't feel safe. That's how trauma works. You don't feel safe. All the growth stops. You're that age until you can help fix and dive back into that stuff. And then people feel safe, and then God uses the gospel of grace and truth over time in community to change you from the inside out. And you might even take note, see if this is you. Because the first thing to go that I always see about a year in is pride starts to go away. It's replaced with humility, kindness, and a willingness to try new things and learn. And that's where life with God starts to blossom. The next thing is relationships with people start to deepen. The desire to love others and be loved just increases, and life with others really begins. And then the mission starts to flourish in your life as it deepens because you want to serve others from your heart. And that life on mission actually bears fruit because you have something to give away. You have the goodness of God in your life, and you want to seek others' good, and you find even more fruit on the tree. I want that for everybody. And I see it happening all the time. And it brings me deep, deep joy and thankfulness for our God, for our church, and for all God is doing. And the truth is, our city needs it, because every city needs it. That God's plan for Birmingham's greatest needs and its highest good is flourishing local churches. So I'm always cheering on every healthy local church. Please, more, Lord. Please. And for citizens, that looks like cultivating a diverse community of disciples who belong to Jesus and seek the good of Birmingham.
You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.